0: We are still on lesson 21, which is called The Stages of Human Evolution. Last week I talked about, um, well, everything but the actual stages of evolution. <laughs> so tonight I thought I would really cover that. And in a sense, this is a, some of this material has been covered in previous lessons. He actually covers it in more detail in earlier lessons than this one. But I just sort of feel like it's such a, a An interesting and an important part of things. And I just, I'm not sure if I've covered it completely or not, but even if I have, I think I want to do it again. Because what he's really trying to talk to us here about, and I I dealt with this a great deal last week, is just the fact that if we can understand how to work with and motivate people, that's just like such an enormous advantage in any human endeavor that we take on. And if we're talking as we are in this context about business, about working with people to be able to look at people and understand what they're about is so extremely important. So much difficulty in life is just because um, I, my reality is self-evident to me and it's so self-evident to me that I assume that you share it. But in fact, you're standing in a whole different context from a whole different perspective and what's self-evident to me is invisible to you. And we just sort of try to talk to each other like this. And that's why people a lot of times develop the habit which you hear if you eavesdrop, um, you know, in restaurants or in various places. You hear people take turns speaking. And they don't really so much speak to each other as they just take turns speaking. You know, I, I present my news and then you present yours and then I present the rest of my story and then you present the rest of yours. And there's never a point at which the realities are really merging. And so anything that helps us to both see ourselves objectively... And also then to, to to cognize the potential reality of a completely other perspective. Uh, it helps us enormously. I think I've shared with you the story before and it, it fits into this. And there's the second stage of developed is, is self-centered. So, second stage of development is to be self-centered, which is to say that you're highly motivated to do it if there's something in it for you. And uh, one uh, time Swami Kriyananda was visiting this family. The family was visiting in Europe, and I think in Europe, maybe it wasn't, so it doesn't matter. There was a young boy in the family, a small boy, like four or five years old, so it must have been in this country. He wouldn't have traveled that far. But Swamiji wanted to take a family portrait, and the little boy wouldn't come out from under the bed. He just wouldn't, you know, and and he was not going to come out. And Swami leaned down and looked in, and he said, I have chocolate from Switzerland, and if you let me take your picture, I'll give you some. And the mother was just horrified that Swami was bribing her son. But Swami was perfectly aware that the child would respond to self-interest. And they kept saying, you need to be nice, you need to help with the family, you need to cooperate with Swami. And that just went over his head. He didn't really care. But you offered him something that he actually wanted. Idealism did not move him, but self-aggrandizement, self-interest did. And after that, the mother actually began to bribe him pretty consistently. And uh, it was a way of getting him motivated, whereas all of her other things had just had no effect on him. And uh, it wasn't wrong to respond to his own nature, because what that did by responding to his own nature, it got him moving. And once he got moving, especially as a child, he began to have experiences that he needed to have, and he he um, got better. I I think he has always been always may may always be to a certain extent motivated by. certain level of self-interest, but I don't know what kind of a man he's become. But uh, it was fine, because otherwise he wasn't going to do anything, not as long as you were appealing to idealism. And a lot of times, it's not only the people that we work with or or in association with in our families or so on, but it's also ourselves. Sometimes we appeal to ourselves on the wrong basis, (laughs) and that we have to be conscious enough to see within ourselves what really is going to motivate us. And sometimes idealism isn't enough. Um, And also it's sometimes confusing to tell within oneself which way is forward. So having a very clear idea of these stages of development just becomes enormously useful. There's a certain number of things when I come to them I always point them out. The eight manifestations of God is one of them and the four stages of development are another that are just endlessly useful. And the more vividly and clearly you have them in your mind, um, the more you can... You know, there's another aspect of this, which when I come to the, third, the second stage of development, which is the self, self-interest stage, a lot of times one can't quite figure out what one is doing wrong, and then you realize that you're behaving from the second stage of development. I'll refer to that in a moment when we come to it. So what I have here, and I will pass out, is basically the four stages of development with each of their characteristics, and we translated them into plain English, although we do refer to the Sanskrit words. So the first stage of development is what, what we refer to as morally asleep. It's also helpful because in this age of political correctness, very often we're not willing to just sort of say what things are. And this gives us a very clear and sort of impersonal way to be able to evaluate reality without necessarily feeling that we're judging it. Okay, morally asleep is when uh, the souls, we talked last week, we talked last week about how we grow up from the animal stage and then we reach a certain level of self-awareness. Well, an individual who's just coming out from, just coming into self-awareness at all, doesn't yet have a refined sense of morals. Their way of behaving is still extremely tied to the material world. And the morally asleep stage, which in the Sanskrit system is called the shudra, which we characterize as the peasant. And we characterize it as the peasant because when you think of a peasant, you think of someone who's primarily working through their physical body in a material way. They're laborers or farmers. No aspersions meant, but it's just a, it's, it's a kind of a stage of work. In, in America, you don't see as many shudras, types, as you do often in third world countries in India, probably in China. I've never been in China or Africa, but I expect it's this similar to India. There's just a lot of people who are shudra types and really what they do is they do labor. And when you look into their eyes, it's not as if it was somebody, some Stanford PhD, who suddenly found himself carrying rocks. It's like you can see that the consciousness of the individual is sort of rising to the level of carrying rocks because that soul is just at the point where it's just beginning to manifest in human form, prior to that it's been manifesting an animal body was sufficient to express the the breadth of its consciousness. But it's advanced from that, so now it it has a human body, it has a little more awareness, but its whole frame of reference is still more on the animal level and it's still completely identified with the physical as real. And it's um, a shudra person's, Consciousness is mostly subconscious, and and what subconscious is in this context is um, not totally non-creative. When we talk about subconscious in this way, what we mean is that the the subconscious mind collects, it collects information, but it doesn't create anything. So Shudra people are, by definition, one of the characteristics of a Shudra is they're not creative. This is the way it's done when we've had a great deal of difficulty, some of the Americans, in the development of our colony in Italy, in India, because we're so creative by nature. And in some of the building projects that we've done or just many different things, we'll have an idea that we'll want to do it in a slightly different way than it's always been done before. And I myself you know, working just with somebody sewing clothes for me in my most recent trip to India, I finally really got it. As long as I ask them to do exactly what they have always done, they they can actually do it well. I mean, it comes down to make this Indian style shirt, you know, with the three buttons and the collar and you'll get a perfect shirt. And it'll give you the impression that the person who made it really knows how to sew. So then you'll say we'll make this little dress, you know, with the, with the shoulders like this and so on. And you'll get back something that's like, what could this person have been thinking? And it was very confusing to me until I realized the difference was one was the well-trodden path and the other was asking them to innovate in some way. I mean, and one of the things that happens, it's just like a joke. I mean, i give you different examples because this is what I've experienced in India. There's a masseuse, for example, and a masseuse in... Uh, an Indian hotel, for example, is not usually a very high caste person. It's not like here where college educated people drop out and become masseuses. It's a whole different thing. Massage therapists. Um, but there you're dealing with a masseuse. And so you'll say, you know, the difficulty, I'm having a lot of trouble with my shoulders. Could you just work more on my shoulders than on my back? Yes, yes, madam. Whatever you like. Yes, yes, madam. Then she'll just follow her routine without any regard for what you said. And, and there's a part of you that just wants to be really annoyed But I realize it's just simply the shudra mentality. It literally does not have a place for a new idea. Because it's just operating on the subconscious. It's just operating on what's already been done. And it can keep repeating what's already been done. But it can't even even cognize the suggestion that we go off the beaten path. Um, And as, as I was saying, it just causes endless trouble because we think that we've communicated perfectly that we want it done like this, and you come back and it was done like that. Because that is the only way that they can do it. Now, it's not... We're not saying that somebody is a horrible person. It's just a fact. And in this context, Swamiji is talking about, you know, in, in many business enterprises, you need shudras. You need people who are not creative and won't um, innovate <laughs> Or where the job is just the the nature of the job is that somebody just needs to do it over and over again. You give such a job to a person who is instinctively creative and identified with change and they might not even do it well. And they will certainly be unhappy doing it. But you give such a job to a shudra and they feel perfectly comfortable. And it's one of the things that you can also realize that for some people that's not such a bad thing. It's okay, just let them do what they're doing. I mean, there's other ways you can help move them forward but you you don't necessarily help people by not allowing them to be who they are. Uh, He says that, you know, uh, on, on this level, when I say morally asleep, it's not necessarily that the person is immoral, it's just that they haven't risen to the level yet where they're reflecting carefully about the values of things. This is also why with such a person you can't appeal to their sense of idealism, even necessarily their pride of work or the rightness of what they're doing. Just such questions don't even... There's no place, again, there's no place to put them. We're just subconscious. We're just working with what we already know. We're not able to absorb new things. And such a person is, as Swami describes it, entirely reactive. I mean, there's no capacity to initiate. We can only respond to what's going on. We respond to what's happening, but we can't self-generate on our own. We're not self-determined. We just flow with what's happening. And one's interest and experience of life is almost entirely through the senses, It's not through ideas. It's not through the mind. It's just through the tangible things that you can experience. Um, They define life physically. That's why working with the body, their body is not necessarily so bad for them because there's not not that much else going on. And it's best for everyone at every stage of development to be able to generate uh, energy because we learn by doing. We learn by having energy flow through us. And gradually that's how we get enough experience to be able to think on a higher level. And if you, if you give someone work that they can do and that they can even feel strong and good in doing, uh, then that'll, that's the best way to mo- motivate them I and mean, help them. You give them something they can't do and, or that um, it's either beneath or above them and it's not really such a good plan. And it's a real service. I mean, there's a need in society for this kind of labor, for good physical labor, and in an ideal society, it's honorable. You remember the story even that Master tells of, or Swami tells, when he was helping to dig the swimming pool for Master, and they were outside with the shovels, and it was very hot, and Swamiji was digging, and Master came out to dig a little bit too, and, you know, it was per, they were perspiring, and it was hard work, and um, Ma, Swamiji, just to make conversation, really said, it's hot work, isn't it, Master. The master says it's good work like that. Which there's a, there's a dignity to using your body, and many people who do just work with their bodies are quite happy doing it. A friend of mine explained once that he he was really not a shudra for sure, but he talked about you know in the early stages of his work before he got promoted, he did some work for the telephone company, I think, and he went gradually from really being hands-on climbing poles and stringing wires to being more and more of a, an executive. And he basically described the enjoyment of his job was, he, he, the, the dirtier he got, the more he enjoyed it. By the time he got to the point where he didn't even have to shower when he came home, he really didn't like his job at all. <laughs> you know, that he just responded more to, the more mental it got, the more away it got from his hands and his body, the less he liked it. It just wasn't in his nature. He wasn't a shuja because he was more creative. That's why he got uh, promoted. Now, characteristics of each of these stages of development is, and I've just given a general description of what this first stage is. And, you know, we recognize ourselves in this. You know, we may not be, nobody is purely anything. I mean, all of us have shudra aspects to our nature. We have aspects where we just prefer to go unconscious, where we just mother, much rather be told what to do, where we don't have creativity, when we're just really thinking in our senses and just not more than that. And so when we see ourselves this way, we have to think about how to motivate ourselves to the next level. It doesn't always work to just shake your fist at yourself at that point, because you're not generally going to be responsive to that. But the other things that characterize each of these stages of development is your basic attitude toward life, what motivates you to put out energy, and also where... um, how you respond to suffering, which is to say, where what causes you suffering, and how do you solve the problem of suffering? You put it differently, where do you find bliss, and how do you seek bliss? Because every everything in life, and this is what we talked about a great deal last week. Every every atom of creation is on this um, cycle of evolutionary expansion until it reaches the point where it has perfect bliss, and. All along the way, the different stages of development are characterized by what we define as suffering and how we seek, above all, how we seek to solve that suffering. Because suffering is a tremendous motivator to us. And we either try to solve it in such a way that our energy moves upward, or we solve it in a way that does not advance um, the cause of expanded consciousness. So the basic attitude of a shudra person is indifference. You know, just they—they they don't have the moral quality to be actively interested in anything. That's one of the one of the things that makes them morally asleep. That they're just indifferent. They don't have aspirations and high goals. I mean, it, by the time someone does, even if they're in a peasant class in society, they've moved into a higher stage of development. The shudra person is just indifferent. Life is like this. I get up. I live my whole life. I do this work. You know, just and and there's no excitement about creativity or anything, we're just reacting to life. But the one thing that moves us when we're in that stage of development is the fear of punishment. And so shudras respond very well to threat. I mean, they don't even respond that well to being bribed because they don't necessarily have enough ambition to care what they get or enough awakeness to care what's given to them. But they do respond to the the imposition of some kind of restriction or another. Now, a lot of times when you're dealing with children, and this is a system that we use extensively in our Living Wisdom School, many children are quite shudra in their consciousness. They won't do it unless there's a threat of punishment involved. And if you threaten to punish them or do punish them, and I don't mean that you can only punish them physically, but very shudra people respond more to something that's physically imposed, whether it be just picking the child up and moving him over someplace, or what people used to do, but consider to be so inappropriate. Now we just spank a child. But, you know, sometimes you, if, you, if it's a shudra child and you spank the child, not brutally, but enough to get their attention, they understand that. This I understand. I don't understand words. I don't understand being told I'm a bad boy. But I understand when somebody physically grabs me and puts me somewhere else. This I understand. This I get. And so when you're dealing with shudras, you have to realize that unless there's some actual threat, I'm going to dock your pay. I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to lose your job. You're going to have to do the most unpleasant tasks. Oftentimes, you, you can't get their attention because they'd rather be lazy than have more. By the time you, you're at the point where having more is a motivation to put out work, you're at the second stage of development already. You're, you're up to being self-centered. Right now, you're just morally asleep. And the respond to suffering... Is one tries to, to tries to avoid pain by by deadening and dulling and lowering one's awareness, and that's where a lot of us de- demonstrate shudra qualities. You know, I don't feel very well. I'm going to watch television. I don't feel very well. I think I'll have a glass of wine, or even you know stronger, more consistent drugs. It's it's a very alcoholics are very shudra in this respect, which is I don't feel well, and the best way. to to deal with the fact that I'm suffering is I'm just going to be so dull that I'm not going to feel it anymore. And you can see it's not a very expansive way of moving. But for many people, that really is their frame of reference. And there's not a lot you can do just by words to sort of tell them, oh, that's not a good idea because that's the way they respond. And it's not just, you know, um, uh, gross poisoning of your body with... uh, uh, substances that influence the mind, oftentimes we deal with pain by just blanking out, becoming dull. Or just becoming repressed. You know, I I have feelings I don't want to feel, I'm just going to suppress them. And then I've shrunk my consciousness. In other words, we try to escape suffering by shrinking our consciousness. And of course, we don't understand that the absolute definition of suffering is a shrunken consciousness. That the more limited we are in our reality... That's what makes us suffer. Because if we're, the more limited we are, the fewer aspects of life we're able to embrace and take in and welcome. And then therefore everything else that happens is a threat to us. But if we just keep dulling our consciousness, we're not going to have to deal with this. Now, if an individual is persuaded that dulling their consciousness is the best solution, they have to just experience that. You can't just keep telling them that it's going to be different. Um, you can try to motivate them to put out more energy. And in the act of putting out more energy, they may learn more. So if you're really threatening to them and that there's going to be a lot of punishment unless they get in there and get that job done, they may discover the satisfaction of putting out energy. And with the satisfaction of putting out energy may come the beginning of an understanding that greater awareness is more pleasurable than less awareness. But until a person knows that, you're not going to be able to tell them. So a lot of time we're looking around and we're beating our head against the wall of trying to tell someone that you'll suffer less if you're more aware. And they'll say, ha, you've got to be kidding me. And you know sometimes uh, there's two stages. People say to overcoming alcoholism, one is to stop drinking and the other is to stop having the, the mindset of an alcoholic. And part of the mindset is to be to dull one's awareness rather than to be engaged. And the last um, the last point I was going to make about you know this characteristic is also the relationships with other people also follow these lines of development. A Shudra consciousness, their approach to relationships is entirely about themselves. And so such people will be inclined to have what you might even call parasitic relationships. Which as long as my needs are met, then it's a good relationship. What's the issue here? Because all of the thinking is about oneself. That's why we call it morally asleep. So you'll see people who may otherwise have refined natures, but they might be very shuja about their relationships. If it works for me, then it works. <laughs> because the whole consciousness is only... It has, there's no principles involved. There's just one's own experience. Now, any questions about that one before I go on a little bit? We can ask questions later, too. Okay? All right. Now, what happens is we don't go from being morally asleep to being completely in tune with God. We have to move step by step. So the second stage is when we we become um, motivated, we become self-centered is what I'm going to call it, or else you could call it um, the stage of self-interest. And I don't mean big-ass interest, but just self-interest like this. This is called the Vaishya level. And it's characteristic by the concept of the merchant. Now, all of you have heard a lot of this before. Okay. Now, what happens is that if a person who is in the first stage of development, you know, is for one reason or another compelled to put out energy, sooner or later we discover certain facts about human nature that even though we think it feels better just to be dull all the time. It really doesn't. It's more dynamic to be engaged. And so if you work with a Shuja person properly and really get them moving, they'll gradually begin to discover that there's higher pleasures than just unconsciousness. And they'll become interested. And interested in what they can get for themselves, primarily. They're not yet at the level where they can think in terms of principle, but they are sufficiently awake that they can start asking the very simple question what's in it for me? Right? And so a person here has, um, well, and so we think of it as a merchant, because a merchant it symbolizes the idea that I'm perfectly willing to give as long as I get. And the idea of being in the merchant class also is that, well, you have to. I mean, sure, you can be generous, but you also got to watch the bottom line. and And so there's Creative interest, as long as there's something always coming back, when we get a little bit higher into the stages of development, we think more about doing the right thing for its own reason. Now, in the American educational system, the public school system, it's almost entirely geared to the first two stages of development. Either the children are motivated for fear of punishment, or they're promised reward, there's almost nothing in the public educational system that deals with um, either either um, higher principles, idealism, or uh, divine qualities, which are the, the qualities beyond this. In the local area, some of you may remember last year or the year before, in one of the really privileged high schools, there was a huge cheating scandal, just a gigantic one, where they discovered that many of the best students from the best families... Were cheating. I don't know whether they were passing tests around or breaking into the computer and doctoring their grades. I don't know what it was. But they were, they, were doc, they were making their grades and their grade point averages higher by means other than actually doing the work. And there was a tremendous, you know, cry of despair from educators and parents. And uh, they just couldn't understand. And there was a simultaneous cry from the students of, huh, what's the big deal? Because And, and what, what no one in it could actually perceive is that because the whole school was about punishment and personal reward, the whole thing was to get your grade point average up. There was almost no emphasis on actually learning anything. It was all just on getting your grade point average up. So if they could think of a cleverer way to get their grade point average up, it, it, was, it was really genuinely hard for the kids to understand why it mattered. Because school was just a means to an end. All you were doing in high school was building your resume so you get in the right university. So if they could get in the right university, what difference did it make? And it was just, I watched it through the papers. There was absolutely no way. I mean, I, I wanted to go in and grab a hold of the thing by the neck, but there was no way because there were so many premises that you would have had to dismantle. And the children had been trained in their own homes, you know, to think in terms of What can you get and how can you get it? So the kids just naturally followed that, took it to its natural conclusion. And then somehow the parents realized that something had gone wrong, but that's the whole education system today. Um, But of course, then you have children who have higher ideals and they're totally turned off because to be treated like that is just like, I mean, I, I myself, when I was in school, it was like I didn't want the end result of what school could give me which is, I wasn't interested in that job or that status college or that this or that. I mean, I could do it all, but I just couldn't think of any reason to do it because the only reason they gave me was these particular sets of rewards and they didn't interest me. I mean, nobody really ever talked to me about education for its own sake, the joy of learning, or taught me in such a way that it was about the joy of learning. It was all just to meet the requirements and get the grades. So I could meet the requirements and get the grades and be. Totally disengaged. Which is basically what I was. I was just totally disengaged. Because I, I didn't want the reward. And no one ever talked about anything else. Um, this, uh, But this level of, of self-centeredness, self-interest, does have more energy and more creativity. Because self-interest is a powerful motivator. Hey, I can get more. I can get rich. I can get powerful. I can get position. I can get recognition. I can get money. And... Yeah, that's pleasurable. So we have advanced. So you also have to realize that if somebody has just been indifferent, for them to become self-centered is real progress. And even though that self-centeredness might be really appalling to someone of a higher level of development, it's actually a a moving forward for, for some people. And one has to have the impersonal respect for each person's evolution to realize that I should bribe this child with chocolate because otherwise he's just going to be dull. But if I can get him to want something, he'll become creative in order to get it. So it it just all depends on where you're standing, which way is forward. And sometimes with ourselves, you have to bribe yourself. You have to promise yourself something good. or You have to threaten yourself with punishment. You have to remind yourself of the disaster that will strike if we don't actually do this. Or the really positive thing I'll get if I do it is not enough just to think I ought to. Oh, I should do this. Because I might not want to at all, period. And the only thing that will move me is self-interest. When I finally finish this page, I'll go downstairs and have a bowl of ice cream. Whatever it might be, if it's going to get you to move, don't scorn it, just do it. Um, A person at this stage is beginning to be aware enough to realize that I can influence my experience of life by my output of energy. Whereas a shudra person is too morally asleep to actually make that connection. You know, you, you, you see shudra people and things happen. They have, no, they have no idea of the relationship between their own actions and what happens to them. When we were first living in our community, this is a very small thing, but it was so amazing to me. Um, and and we were sharing the community with a lot of the people, the the indigenous people who were in the community when we came, who for the most part did not have very high consciousness. And uh, like seven o'clock or six o'clock on Saturday morning, we were living in building two and so our, our our bedroom backed up on the parking lot. Somebody parked his car right next to the building at six in the morning, opened the hood and started working on it and turned on the radio like really, really loud at six in the morning, like 10 feet from everybody's bedroom window. And quite apart from the unpleasantness of it, I just looked at David and I said, amazing. Imagine This man is so unaware or so indifferent that he doesn't have any idea what's going on. And then later on in his life, you know, people will be, will show callous disregard for his well-being and he'll be bewildered and outraged, you know, and not have the slightest idea of the relationship between the way he's behaving. But it's a fact. It's not like they're pretending. It's like he really doesn't know. But at this point you begin to get enough self-awareness that you realize, oh, I could do something about this. I could make this different, and then you become a little more creative. You, you begin to have ideas about what you're going to do. Uh, I mean, you may remember when we were traveling in India one year, Linda Gerber was with us, and she was a very, very creative woman. Um, she was a she, she was a homemaker. She wasn't in business, but she did help her husband in his business, and she was very, very creative about everything she did, and she did it with full full energy. And she had she understood the teachings but you know she wasn't totally steeped in them so, con- so confusion would enter and she'd often heard us say that you have to experience everything before you can transcend it so we were traveling in india and we were in the uh, state of orissa which is a very poor area of india and we were uh, traveling through and we stopped at a little rest stop and there were these m- several men in these carts with these carts and the cart was like a, like a little table on wheels and they were selling peanuts. And they were selling peanuts by rolling up a piece of newspaper into a cone, and then they would fill it with peanuts, and they would sell it to you for 10 rupees. And it's not such a good idea to eat food off the street if you're a Westerner, but, but peanuts in the shell were one thing that we could, all, we could all have, so we were all buying peanuts from this man. And the man was crouched on top of his stool like this, And when you'd ask him for peanuts, he'd give you peanuts. I mean, he spent his whole day... I mean, for someone like us, it was like, my God, you would die of boredom. How could you stand it? Well, so Linda bought her peanuts and then she became quite agitated and she rushed onto the bus and she rushed up to me and she said, am I going to have to be a peanut seller in Orissa? (laughs) You know, because it was the last thing she ever wanted to do. I said, well... Probably you've already been one. But the other side of it, I said, if you were a peanut seller in Orissa, I said, the first thing you'd do is that you would paint your cart sort of a nice shade of peach. (laughs) Then the next thing you'd do is you'd find some nice paper and you would wrap your peanuts in that paper with a little ribbon on them. Then you would organize all the other carts, you know. Because it would be impossible at her stage of evolution to be subconscious. She just couldn't be subconscious. So even if she found herself by some quirk of fate selling peanuts, she would compulsively be creative doing it. So it, that's part of the way we understand when people ask, oh, could I go back to being a goat? You know, do I have to be a peanut seller in Arista? Is this all just random? No, no, not at all. Because once you experience a certain level of awareness, you you might, um, as Swami writes in here, if you if you use your willpower in egregiously wrong ways. You might get thrown back, you know, for a while. But he he said even then you would have a dim awareness of, oh my God, here I am, I'm trapped, you know, in this monkey body. And I remember that I used to be so much more and you you would try to expiate it and go forward. But just fundamentally, once you reach a certain level of self-awareness, you really, you can't lose it because... Your response to suffering is different. You you solve your problems in a different way. I mean, when I say you can't lose it, I mean you can try. I mean, a person can become so discouraged that they'll fall back into a more of a shudra consciousness for a while. But it's in you. You've already tasted beyond it. It's not the same as just coming up. To fall back still means that some part of you knows the difference, and that's how reincarnation really works. And that's how evolution really works. And it's very sensible, you see, then. It's a, it's a process of gradually expanding awareness. And as your awareness expands, you keep reaching for more because of the experience that you have. Um, so for, for, a, for a person at this second stage, at the Vaisha level, the physical world is still the primary focus. You know, you're still thinking about the things of this world. You're not yet living in the realm of ideas or the realm of spirit. The world as you see it is the world. And that's, again, that's the merchant consciousness. Well, you know, somebody's got to, like, make the paving stones. It might not be very glamorous work, but somebody's going to do it. And you're also not necessarily motivated by ideals. And a lot of times, you know, people, idealistic people, will try to speak to Vaishya people. You shouldn't be making DDT You shouldn't be using fiberglass insulation. You should be composting your scraps. person will say, why? You know? It's like there's money in scraps. You know, there's money in DDT. And if somebody else doesn't... If I don't do it, somebody else will do it. Because they're just motivated by self-interest, self-aggrandizement, the things of this world. A moral principle doesn't strike them as having enough reality to make your life. Whereas once you get to the third level, which is the Kshatriya level... Moral principles have tremendous impact. And it, it's almost impossible then to make a decision that violates a moral principle. And it's not like the, the uh, second level person is ignoring that. He doesn't even perceive it. Because it's not real enough to him. It's too abstract. he's, he's still much more in the... He's, he's above the shudra. But not by that much. Not yet. But he's moving into the conscious mind level because he's he's creating and and initiating and not merely reacting and, re, and to what's already there so vaishyas can be very very creative they can be very vaisha but they can still be very creative because there's something in it for them and some are do, do that with a uh, you know a lot of the horrible entertainment and things you see and just really god awful um, morally depraved things you see are done by extremely creative vaishyas um what, uh, t- to put it in simple words, a vaisha is not concerned with either the meaning of life or self-improvement, except as it's defined in physical terms. Um, the basic attitude of a vaisha is very simple. What's in it for me? Looking out for number one. That's the vaisha consciousness. If there's something in it for me, I'll do it. I will put out energy. I will, in fact, be very creative if there's something in it for me. But otherwise, why bother? And to them that's self-evident, why bother? If there's nothing in it, if there's no profit, Why bother? As a service to people, oh, come on, get real, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they assume everyone else is like that. Such people are the ones who believe that all of us at Ananda have, must have secret bank accounts somewhere, because we can't really be doing this just for the joy of doing it. Swami so, mean, Kriyananda, of course, as the leader of the community, must have power, money, and, you know, some tremendous something, because why else would he do it? To them, it's self-evident. And it's literally impossible for them to imagine that you would do it just out of moral principle. And, and and you can't tell them. There's just no way. You just don't even try. The motivation is entirely personal gain. That's all. They're highly motivated. And you know, very highly educated, seemingly refined, high high people in society can be vicious. I think most of our government is either vicious or shudras. One of the most really stunning things that's happened to American democracy is as the CNN, where they actually um, broadcast the Senate hearings and the House hearings. I don't mean to be rude, but my God, our elected officials are among the most unattractive people I've seen. They're just, every so often I'll see that, you know, that stuff somewhere where there's somebody they're broadcasting and you realize you're looking at a Senate hearing and you're seeing, for the most part, uh, people who are physically out of shape, seemingly mentally dull, totally self-interested, And not very smart, as far as I can see, or smart in a way that's not very attractive. I'm just stunned by what those people are like. its I mean, maybe there's good ones there. President Obama, as they said, after eight years of Bush, was amazing because he was an American president who spoke for half an hour without making a grammatical mistake. (laughs) Which, you know, was impressive. And I think he's more than a Vaisha, I hope. But most of the people who run our countries are shudras and vaishas. They're either just dull people who have just settled in there or they're in it for themselves. There's a few that move from the third level of idealism, but God knows not many. And that's, of course, what the mess is about right now. Okay, the the response to suffering on the vaisha level is a very interesting one, which is the vaisha imagines that I'm being, that everything is seen in terms of the world, the the world you can see. So pain is caused by what people do to me. You know, you stole my business, you spoke rude to me, you didn't, my kid didn't obey me. So when things don't go right, the Vaisya tries to control what's going on around. And so Vaisya parents just expect their kid to go and into my business. Why wouldn't you go into my business? And if you don't, I'll just cut you off without a dime. You know, it's just, it's all about, I, I feel better when everything is the way I want it to be. Now, the interesting aspect of that, you see that a great deal of um, political activism actually comes from this level because it's, it frightens me that things are a certain way, so I need them to be different. And it bleeds over into a certain idealism, but often a tremendous amount of what passes for altruism is actually a very vaisha consciousness. And this is where, when I was saying before, when you have a subtle understanding of these things and you can start applying them to yourself, sometimes the the way vaisha creeps in is one of the most interesting ones. Because we'll often realize that even in the guise of, oh, I'm so concerned about so-and-so's behavior and I really need someone, you know, I really want them to understand this, what we're really being is Vaisha, which is that in some way or another, I feel pain, and I'm going to get rid of that pain by making someone else do what I want them to do. And that one really creeps in. But when you, when you understand the difference between genuine idealism and trying to avoid pain by controlling the world around you, you can begin to see, oh, this is, I'm fooling myself with this one. And it, the, the vaisha also comes into very serious play on the spiritual path in the, in the context of being a merchant. Because the thought form of the vaisha is, well, I'm absolutely very, very happy to give a tremendous amount. Because, of course, I know when I give, there'll be an equal return. And so I'll sell you all these goods. I'll even give you a 15% discount, you know, but I'm getting my fair share and I'm still making a profit. And what, what creeps into our life as devotees is a kind of sense of that God ought to respond to us because after all, look how much I've given. And we might not just say it just like that, but we, we, we realize that I'm on the spiritual path for what I'm going to get. I'm not on the spiritual path by what we'll soon describe as the third and the fourth level, which is because it's the right thing to do. I'm not meditating because it's it's a, it's a moral principle with me to give back to God. I'm doing all of this because if I give, I know I'm going to get. And we have to transcend that merchant consciousness. Last night in our disciples class, we were talking a little bit about tapasya, and someone asked the question about the whole story of Abraham having to sacrifice his son because God asked him to sacrifice, and, you know, would God, what was that really about? Well, part of it those kinds of symbolic stories or literal stories are to break us of this merchant consciousness. And it isn't that God won't fill us with bliss, but we have to come into the thought that that this is my nature to be in tune with God. I'm not doing it because look at all that I get. And when I'm in tune with God, then the whole world behaves in a certain way. And a tremendous amount, again, of, quote, new age teaching, which is a whole lot of Um, sort of like good ideas but without God and it's all about the ego is really extremely Vaisha. Even though the the overlay on it is um, pretty, the underlying reality is well I'm going to do this because I'm going to get. And it isn't really idealism. It's really just self-interest. It's prettied up and it's of a higher level but it's still just Vaisha. And that's only the second of four stages of development. And it's not bad if you're coming from shudra. And a lot of, you know, prosperity manifesting is a necessary stage when you're coming from shudra. Because if you've been a shudra and you're willing to put out tremendous energy to get, that's progress. But then there's a certain point where you realize that it's really not about getting. It's only about giving. And it's a different idealism. And then you move above, uh, higher than that. and, and But the vaisha really creeps in. A very many, many times when I've been counseling someone or talking to someone, I'll realize, and I mean, I'll have to sometimes explain this whole thing, but I'll say, the difficulty is you're being vaisha about your spiritual life, because what you're really saying is, God should be treating me different after all that I've done. Yeah, and it, as I said, it's not usually that blatant, but it's often in there. And it's, you have to be very vigilant against it. But it's very, very helpful once you get it. Oh, that's what I'm doing wrong. So then you move over, and then you can begin to put things right again. All right, any thoughts or questions before we take a little break? do not you look at the speaking to the microphone so it comes out on the tape? Uh huh. Maybe um, this will become clear after you do the third and fourth part. But it seems like I'm bargaining all the time with God. Mm-hmm. If I do 108 kriyas. You know, I will see the spiritual eye, or I will be self-realized if I do this. So. Well, you're, you're exactly illustrating what I was just saying, which is that Vaisha creeps in. And it's better to be a Vaisha than a shudra and not do it. It's better to motivate yourself with the idea that you're going to get something from it. But a higher stage of development is that one just simply does it, because... It brings you joy to do so, to to do the right thing, to cooperate with idealism. It's not because it's a fear of punishment or a a threat uh, or a sense of possible reward. It's just, it's my nature to do so. In one of the other classes I I talked about the difference, one of these classes, I talked about the difference, Master saying, it's not enough to be good because it's merely your habit to be good. You need to do the right thing and be good because it becomes your nature to do so. And in that class, I don't need to give the whole thing here, but I was talking about the fact that... Um, and I, I'm using this small example of myself because I can't think about... This is how I understand it. I don't know how else to illustrate it. I have, I, I, have a, I would say I have a very difficult time. I would probably use the phrase, I can't lie. I'm just not good at lying. I've never been good at lying from the day I was born. I just... I'm not inclined to not tell the truth. I just have to tell the truth. I mean, I've never been tested in horrible ways, but I just, it's my nature to tell the truth. And, and if I lie or even am tempted to lie or even twist the truth a little bit, I feel awful. It's just, I just can't do it. But I can skip a meditation. And it, it's like I meditate because I, I, I know that I should meditate and I want to meditate, but I can skip a meditation. Because it's not yet my nature to meditate absolutely without ever skipping one. See the difference? And so there's still a level of self-interest. And we motivate ourselves to do it. And that's okay. It's better than not doing it. But we gradually come to the point where it's just our nature to do it because we live according to those principles and we can't violate them. And so you just have to watch it and work with it. But better, but if you know that if you don't think about what you're going to get from your 108 Kriyas, you'll just go and watch television, then by all means, think about the results. (laughs) Because it's being realistic with our own nature. So it's, sometimes I feel like I'm overreaching. You know, like I'll, I'll say, well, I should... No, you know, I should be doing this just because it's the right thing to do and not right. be. So you're saying that I should continue to keep straight. You need to do what actually works. If, but then that'll... Uh, if, okay. if you're going to put out more and better energy by thinking in terms of the reward that you're going to get for doing the right thing, don't hesitate to do it. Okay. But, but ideally, of course... You do it because... But if, yeah. it's, if it should, you see, that's not quite spontaneous. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. It has to be... You have to work very sensitively with your own nature and not be ashamed and not try to be more than you are. You know, if, if one is motivated by Vaisha thinking, then be motivated. That's the most important point. That's why Swami bribed the little boy with chocolate. It was more important that he come out from under the bed than in that moment he become a Kshatri. He wasn't going to. But if he came out from under the bed, he had a chance of becoming a Kshatriya someday because he would have the right experience. So, I, I mean, I, I play with this like a game. We are what we are. Listen, we're not fooling yeah. anybody. Yeah. We're not fooling ourselves. We're not fooling God. I mean, and besides, you don't have to publish these things. But even if you did, nobody's fooled. We all know ourselves. Yeah. And especially if you kind of lightheartedly play with this. And, and if you know what you're doing and you do it consciously... You know, then it works itself out in time. Yeah. But to try to just impose upon yourself, when we were taking the Swami vow, somebody came to me and said they wanted to take the Swami vow it was so completely inappropriate, just utterly. I said, Why? Well, it's because it's the highest vow, he said. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah but this is not, that's not what this is about. Yeah. This is about something completely else. So, you know, well, I'm a kshatra because that's the higher level. No, if you're not, you're not. But at least you're bargaining over your kriyas and seeing the light. You know, that's real progress. <laughs> you know, you're not just doing it for money because there's no money in it. Uh, on last Sunday, um, there was a woman who was relatively new and I was just chatting with her. I said, she said, she really likes coming here because it makes her very happy. And she looked around, she noticed that everybody here seemed happy. I said, well, you know what I love about this uh, temple is that there's no status in coming here. There's no great networking business opportunity. <laughs> and there's no promise that you won't go to hell. So the only reason you come is that if you enjoy it. So it makes a very nice group because everybody's there for the fun of it. And as soon as they stop enjoying it, there's nothing else to hold them. Which is, makes a really clean, sincere group. Yes. Um, my question is, uh, how to tell more where the other... Person is on that line, especially I've been working with children lately. Is maybe I'm not so clear about how you really can tell. Well, where you that test person it. You, you, you try. A... You say, honey, would you clean, if you clean up the table, you know, we'll all just enjoy the house so much more. Uh huh. You know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, it would make your mommy so happy if you just took the garbage out. Oh, yes, I love taking the garbage out you're part of this family and we all do our part. Yes, we do. Or, no ice cream for you unless you get up now and do it. One, two, three. (laughs) Ah, You just see what works. That's just very pretty simple. By the fruits, you shall know them. (laughs) Depends on what you think. Start from the top and go down is what uh, Echavir is asking. Just depends. I mean, you want... I would say you could start from the top and go down and see what happens. I mean, if you're, they're your own kids, you probably have a chance to notice. But you can, you can always start from the top and see if you can get them to move from the top and then be willing to go to the bottom because the most important thing is to get them to move. All right, let's take just a very short break, okay? The, the characteristic also of the visha level is that it's good if it gives pleasure to me. And a lot of art, actually, is visha level it's done because it gives pleasure to me. A lot of artists are very vaisha. They do it because of what they get from it. And they like to express themselves and they like to... They're not thinking in terms of their art serving or their art being in a, a, an expression of an ideal. It's just my expression. So a, a lot of art is just very transitory. And that's also, it's very discouraging for artistic people because Swami Kriyananda, for example... Um, A man who wanted to be a songwriter said to him once, tried to justify his own passion for that, for self-expression, by saying, you know how it is. Sometimes you just have to write music. So he said, no, actually, I don't. He said, what I do creatively I do to serve master's work. I don't do it out of any inner need to do it. See, it's the vaisha level that it gives me pleasure to do it and I want to do it. And a lot of artistic people worship that. I just express myself. If they like it, they can like it. If it's degraded, if it pulls people down, so what? It's what I have to say. And again, you see, it's just Um, self-interest. Just because it's creative doesn't necessarily mean it's elevated. And when you sort of begin to see it, you see a lot of art that's very subconscious. It's subconscious in the sense that it expresses the artist's version of reality, but it's not a version of reality that connects. It's like personally meaningful, but there's no bigger message to it. It's, it. it's really interesting when you start looking at art from that point of view, because you can sort of just see it. This, it might even be well done, but it's, it's subconscious because it's just their own reality. There's no ideal of communication or serving something more universal. And so you, even as an artist and a creative person, you need to develop. Think about the impact of what you're doing and what's behind it. And not just the pleasure it gives you to do it. Not surprisingly, the relationship for a self-centered person is um, symbiotic. You do something for me, I do something for you. And you know, a, a person at that level of development might carry on a... They're the kind of people who make lists of how many chores you do and how many chores I do, you know, and how, how much tuna fish costs and how much you eat and how much I eat. And you know, and that I did this today and then you'll do it tomorrow. It's just, it's, they'll give, but it's always on the same level. Now sometimes it's appropriate if you're dealing with a very Vaishya person who's always trying to get from you. Sometimes even if you're a Kshatri, you need to make a list like that because it's the appropriate way to deal with them. And so it's not necessarily appropriate for a Kshatriya person to constantly give to a Vaishya person when their point of view is, how much can I get for myself? So sometimes again, this is thinking. A Kshatriya says, well I could easily do this out of my devotion to principle, but the principle here also says I have to pay attention to his development or her development. I mean, that's also very true between parents and children. The, the The parent has this idealistic thing, but in fact, they don't really relate to what's good for the child. They just relate to the pleasure of what they're doing. Okay? Does have to be conducted on that level? No. But, uh, no. You can conduct business on the level of Dharma and principle. But if you are dealing with Vaishas, you have to be conscious of the fact that they're Vaishas. The way you deal with it from a higher level is you make sure that the Vaisha gets what he needs. Um, and then you try to also talk to them about higher principles and you try to bring them up a little bit. But you also know that if you're dealing with the vaishya you can't expect him to be generous to you on principle because he won't be. And you don't have to object to just being straight and firm with him because that's his reality. You offer the boy chocolate to come out from under the bed. And you don't say, oh, well, we'll just this will just be a handshake deal and you'll be good to me and I'll be good to you. That's just dumb if you're dealing with a Vaisha. If the man you're dealing with, the woman you're dealing with, is also a kshatriya, then you can deal like that. But you need to make sure that they are. And you can't just pretend they're kshatriyas because you want them to be. The question I was answering which might not have gotten on the tape was does business always have to be vaisya? Yeah. No. Business business is often vaisya but you're really very fortunate if you can do business on a higher level than that. And part of what Swamiji tries to tell us by these lessons if you behave as a Kshatriya you can often raise the level of things but you, you can't be stupid. Sri Yukteswar says spirituality is not dumbness. And sometimes people get idealistic and then they don't recognize who they're dealing with. And that's just not wise. It's, it's naive. It's not wisdom. It's naivete. And <laughs> it's really a vaishya attitude because you're trying to make everyone be the way you want them to be because I don't want to have to descend to that level so I'm just going to pretend that you're higher than you actually are because otherwise I would have to deal with you. And so one's own response to life is not Kshatriya. That's actually Vaishya. I'm happy by making the world the way I want it to be. You're ineffective, but you're still trying to use that same method. And that's what I mean. You have to be very conscious of, of how these things work. They're fabulous. Or that's also even Shudra. Oh, I just don't like the fact that these people are so mercenary, so I'm just going to pretend they're not. You know, I'm just going to deal with this unpleasant fact by just going to sleep. That'll work. <laughs> of course, it doesn't work at all. But it's a Shudra response instead of putting out the energy to really see what's happening. All right? The third level is we, what we call truth seeking. See, we're no longer now, now we're not self seeking, we're not self centered. Actually, we've actually really become interested in what's true. This is the level in the Festival of Light called the Quest. At this level, at the morally asleep and self-centered, we don't, we're not really interested in truth. We're not thinking about what's right. We're not thinking about principles. We're not thinking about the meaning of life. We're just getting what we can. And wow, isn't that great? Look at me. I've got even more. But, it, but eventually, when we do this long enough, it crosses our mind that, God, what is going on here? <laughs> what's really happening? What are the real principles? Where does happiness really come from? So we become truth-seeking. We haven't yet, we're not necessarily truth knowing, but we're truth seeking. We start suddenly, we're gradually trying to rule our lives according to principle. And this is the point in which we see a bigger reality than just my own self interest and we start thinking about the meaning of it all. And this is the kshatriya level. And kshatriya um, is the soldier king, kshatriya. And this is called the soldier king. Because a soldier in the ideal form is a person who is so committed to his ideals that he's literally willing to lay his life down for the sake of others. So it's a very, very high state of consciousness in a certain sense. And ideally a king also is the servant of his people and of his country. I mean, the problem, as I was saying, is so many of our leaders are you know, merchants and peasants. But ideally, you, your your kingdom should be ruled by a Kshatriya. I mean, it has to be ruled by a Kshatriya, not a Brahmin usually, because the Brahmin is, can't involve himself enough in politics and government to really care. But a, a Kshatriya can. He's still engaged in this world, but he's trying to engage from the level of principle, from the level of meaning. And the Kshatriya has discovered that, although it's pleasurable to fulfill my own desires... What gives me the greatest pleasure is to provide for others. And so this is again like the Vaisha may have acquired enough wealth to be able to be generous. And he suddenly discovered that whereas it was a lot of fun for me to buy three Porsches for myself, it was even more fun to buy one for someone else. And so the the idea of generosity and an experience beyond self-aggrandizement begins to cross your mind. And it crosses your mind because you, you live through it. You accidentally stumble upon it. And also, the, the Kshatriya, as he goes on a truth-seeking quest, begins to realize that just giving in to all the physical imperatives doesn't necessarily bring me the pleasure I thought it was going to bring me. So it's also a, a soldier, warrior, king because you begin to do battle with your own nature. Whereas the Shudra doesn't even care and the Vaishya is just trying to indulge it When you begin to be truth-seeking, you begin to think, maybe I really need to exert a little willpower here. Maybe just eating whatever I want doesn't work. Maybe pursuing every male or female that attracts me isn't really such a good idea. Maybe just expressing whatever emotions or anger I feel doesn't really bring me what I want. He begins to become a, a warrior within himself. And he begins to try to conquer those aspects of his nature, which are the more merchant and peasant aspects, which, haven't, which don't really serve truth as he's beginning to understand it. And that's why we also call it. So that it's at the point at which the battle begins. That's a lot of in the Mahabharata. That's the Arjuna chakra. It's the third chakra. It's the willpower chakra. He's the warrior. He's the soldier. You've got to get engaged with Arjuna. This is also the dividing line between really, really being on the spiritual path and just playing on the spiritual path. And a lot of false teachings these days basically deny the warrior level at all. All you have to do is just manifest whatever you want. That's obviously what God wants, isn't it? You can have it all. You never have to deny yourself anything. Why should you? Well, try it. (laughs) And then gradually you come to the third level and you begin to ask what's really true. And experience is the only thing that tells you. Um, The basic attitude of the Kshatriya is a real simple one, which is, what's the truth? How can I serve? And you want to know the truth about yourself, you want to know about other people, you want to know it in a cosmic sense. And we, we come to a kshatriya level, where, and we're, we are really interested in who I am and what's really motivating me. And this is the point at which you can really engage with people. Was that the right thing to do? Whereas b- before that, I mean, like those kids who were cheating you couldn't engage them on the level of the kshatriya. Oh, they were just on the level of the merchant. It wasn't a question of whether it was a good thing to have done. It was just the only problem was they got caught. It wasn't really that it was wrong. It was that they weren't smart enough to get away with it. And you you couldn't really engage them. And this is what was so horrifying for so many of the parents. You couldn't engage them on the level of principle because they just, they didn't understand the level of principle. And they, a lot of it was because of the examples set by their own families. You know, how many businessmen, how many attorneys, how many politicians, if you can get away with it, it's good enough. And so the youth, I mean, maybe not their own parents, but the, all of society, that's what you see all around you. You see these, you know, these sports people making mazillions of dollars and just spending it on themselves, and that's like it's idolized. And then you ask them to be self restrained for the sake of a principle, and it's like, why would I do that? You know, it's a mess. 'll get better. And then you ask what's the true principle? And then you also ask how can I expand beyond myself? What can I do for others? Because you've discovered from being so self-interested that that doesn't really work. Um, and the motivation on the Kshatriya level is that you do it because it's the right thing to do. You're motivated by ideals and you're motivated by truth. You know, and a lot of soldiers are like that. Even though their you might say their loyalty might be a, a little bit narrow. I I was on an airplane with this marine, this young marine, I was very impressed. I mean, he was a simple guy, not that well educated. But you know, he was a real Kshatriya. He believed in what he was doing. He was all for his buddies. He was powerful. He was courageous. You know, he was even, you know, centered about the fact that some of his buddies had been killed. You know, it was was a very, he was a real Kshatriya in the very traditional sense. And he was really moving up the scale, even though in the truth that he was dedicated to was not necessarily one that I myself could be dedicated to. But in his own way, he was really moving up. And you can't really take that away from people. I had this argument once with this unity minister who basically was trying to, you know, take away the concept of the military from the whole world. I said, well, you know, for a lot of people, rising to the level of a soldier is real progress for them. And he just, he'd never ever thought of it that way. But for a lot of people to be a soldier is really a big step forward. And you have to let them do it. You have to let them have their way of being brave and strong. And they're not motivated by more peaceful or less dramatic ways of, of living. And the response to suffering when you reach the Kshatriya level is the beginning of the understanding that suffering is created from inside myself by my attitude toward my life experiences. This is where we've become truth-seeking enough to notice that it isn't coming from outside of me. That, for one thing, I can't control the environment, but merely controlling the external world does not cause me to be able to escape the pain. What causes me to be able to escape the pain is to change myself. But you see what a high level of understanding that is? Sometimes you talk to people about, well, you know, gee, you could change your attitude. I love this woman that I heard once. There was some kind of a film, and the film was, I mean, it was a a radio, television interview, and they were doing a a poll of people who had cancer to find out if there was a mind-body connection. You know, great, really, really high-level science. We'll just ask cancer patients whether they think that there's a mind, a connection from their mind to their bodies. And this wonderful woman, I loved her, the man came in and said, well, you know, we're doing this study and we really want to know if, if you know, there's some connection between the way you've been thinking and the fact that you have cancer. Hell no, she said. It's bad enough that I have cancer. I'm sure as hell not going to be responsible for it. <laughs> <laughs> I bowed to the colossal temple of ignorance in front of me. But you know, Sometimes you say things like that to people. Maybe the fact that you got fired has something to do with your attitude. Absolutely not. My boss is a jerk. You're Just not looking for a truth that, that has to do with self. But then you come to a point where you think, gee, and, and it's both, you know, it's a revelation and it's also liberating. I could change my attitude. I don't just have to make the whole world be a certain way. I have some, I can have self-mastery. You see what a remarkably exciting concept that is? And, and so you're really moving to a higher level of development at that point because you suddenly have so many more possibilities that you simply don't have. And so you also become very creative at that point because what you're doing is not obvious anymore. At the Vaisha and Shudra level, you're relating very much to the world as you see it. And there's just no need for creativity because there it is after all. I mean, well, the Vaisha can be creative in self-interest. But the Kshatriya has to be, be reinventing things a lot because you have to look more subtly. And it's not just that you're a painter or a sculptor or anything like that, but you have the ability to see that which is not obvious. You have a, a creative ability to look beyond the self-evident. You know, people are creative in many different ways. And one of them is just the ability to imagine a reality that isn't um, three-dimensional right in front of you. Um, and so you also become... you Much more you initiate, much more you don't just react. Because if you're moving according to moral principle, you have to initiate. You can't just be passive. Much of the time, you have to take a stand. You have to be the one who make, takes the action. you You have to assert. Because if there's a principle involved and you're committed to that principle, you can't just allow whatever happens to happen. And so as I was saying, the response to suffering is to raise your energy rather than to lower it. This is what you really begin to realize at the truth-seeking level. That happiness and lack of pain comes from expanding my awareness. And so you're, you know, you're really on the road at that point. And again, the, this is a really important dividing line because you're then willing to say, I'm in charge, I can change my reality. And I'm part of, a, of something that exists outside of me. It isn't just a question of what I can get away with. It's that these truths are there and I have to bring myself up to them. So you're also, even if you're not entirely a devotee, you're moving in the direction of becoming a devotee because you have begun to cognize that there are um, independent realities to which I must conform rather than just me and I can do what I want. And as you gradually refine that into a more and more subtle understanding of divinity, but that's the first step toward it, truth-seeking. And relationships at this level are... um, Well, the word, I just to be cute, is to say they're synergistic. You know, there's an interplay of energies. And and it's about giving. And you understand that a great deal of fulfillment comes from giving. That it, it doesn't make me so happy just to always be trading... It's just that the act of loving, generous loving, is very fulfilling, and that's what I want. Um, you have to do that according to right principle. That's what I was saying a little while ago. Sometime kshatriyas are really being vicious because they, the pleasure of self-giving blinds them to truth. But you know, a kshatriya person by nature has an open heart and a very giving nature. And of course... In appropriate relationships, then you know, great sweetness and self-expansion can take place because if you're ready to do that and you're not being um, and you're appropriate in the expression of it, it's, it can be very satisfying. And also, because you have mastery over yourself, you don't have to control people. It doesn't matter. You're not doing it as a merchant. I mean, I'm, I'm, on one hand, I'm talking about spoiling people and being inappropriate. But the other side of it is you can be very self-giving and it really doesn't matter what comes back to you as long as your giving is appropriate because you're not in it for what you get. You're in it because it's the truth of your own nature. And that's when you really begin to grow. And then in our relationship with God, it becomes I serve, I give. That's where we bring in things like tithing. I just give. I don't give because I like this project. I don't give to get my name on that thing. I don't give because I have lots of extra money. I tithe because that's the truth. That's what I should do. And I'm not even, that's what I should do. I do that because that's right. Because God gives to me, so I give back to God. And even uh, even donating because I like the project is a little bit of a Vaisha. Tithing is a pure kshatra action, because it's a percentage of whatever I have, and I just give it to the source of my inspiration without any strings attached, and I do it just because it's the right thing to do. That's why I'm always bringing it up. Because it's better. It's a higher level of giving than merely being generous because I have extra. Then you're still in this, a little bit in the merchant. That's also good, but tithing as a foundation is better. Um, Okay, any other questions before I do the fourth level, before we finish? Okay, the last level here is we either call it truth, truth sharing or truth knowing. And this is the Brahman um, truth knowing or you could say truth sharing. And this is the Brahman and this is the priest. And this is where one's seeking of truth has come to the point where now I know and as I was saying, at the Kshatriya level, you're moving toward the idea of God's presence in your life and the reality of God. But at, at this level, one knows. One is a Brahmin in the truest sense, which is one lives in constant relationship to the infant. And it, you, you don't even do it because it's the right principle. You do it because of the constant awareness of God flowing through you. You know, At, at the Kshatriya level, often one says, this is the right principle and I will do it. I am a soldier. I am a warrior. I can do it. The Brahman simply acts. This is the distinction that I, I often make between what I per- used to think of as Swami Kriyananda having right, right attitudes and then realizing that he had right consciousness, that he wasn't trying to have a good attitude. It was just the way he saw the world. And when he looked at someone, he just saw the divine shining forth. So he didn't have to try to be loving and accepting. It was impossible not to be. And that becomes the truth-knowing, truth-sharing level. And at this point, one is not identified with the material world at all. The only reality is the spirit. And you may act and appear to be acting in the material world, but your awareness is just of the spiritual world. And such people live very differently. True Brahmins live very differently, even though they may look like everyone else. Their, their inner consciousness is really shifted. Um, And their sense of fulfillment, a Brahmin's sense of fulfillment, comes only and always from attunement to higher awareness. It isn't because my home is comfortable, I've become wealthy, I'm respected by others. It's just simply, I'm in tune with God and I feel in bliss. And if I fall out of attunement, I'm in misery. And that's when you see how, you know, how very sensitive the saints can become, even about tiny things. In the life of Saint Bernadette of Lourdes, um, in the last you know, days and weeks of her life when she was ill and she was dying, she was very disturbed because of certain memories of the way she mistreated her mother. Oh, my mother worked very hard one day making a soup for us, and I didn't appreciate what she had done. You know, just little tiny aberrations. I know when uh, Paula was dying and she had been th- through these three days of sort of cleaning up all her business, we asked her, is there anything else left? And she'd had a a friendship with this man. He he was known by his initials like PJ or something like that. I think that's what he was called. And uh, she'd had a a very um, deep friendship with him. Um, The man um, came from a a difficult background and actually went back into where he'd come from and ended up being shot. And he was murdered in some peculiar manner. It was never clear to us whether he was... Had gotten into drug dealing or what happened, but anyway, he was shot, so he, he didn't live anymore. So he, he died before Paula. So Paula was thinking about PJ and she said, Well, once, and she said it very seriously PJ gave me a rose bush and I was so mad at him that I didn't plant it for a month. She said like that. PJ, of course, was dead, so she couldn't do anything about it. But we all said to each other, Oh Lord, please, when I die, let the worst thing that I've done is that I didn't plant the rose bush for a month. But you know, she had just, she would cleared the deck so completely. That was the only thing she could think of that was left. That she'd been, she'd, she'd, she'd made that rose bush suffer because she was mad at him. But that's, you know, that's when you get to be a Brahmin. That's how your life is. You're not just good because it's your habit to be good. It's your nature to be good. You can't behave differently. That's like Swamiji. He wasn't nice to me because I was young. He wasn't courteous to me with, and didn't want to make me he didn't want to be nice to me and not make me feel demeaned because I was so inexperienced and young. He didn't notice that I was young. Because what is young? Young is the age of the body. The soul is, who knows? And so his, his perception of people is through the eyes. And so he sees the soul consciousness. He doesn't see the fact that this one is 21 and this one is six and this one. He has an intuition that causes him to behave appropriately. But his mind is a Brahmin mind. It's very fantastic. Um, the basic attitude of the Brahmin is very simple, which is what does God want? And the only thing that motivates you is to do God's will. Like that story of, uh, is it, was it, Di- who, who was the one that Alexander the Great went to see? Was it, I was going to say Diogenes, is that correct? Was it Diogenes? Anyway, but. Al- Alexander the Great had heard about this great sage and remember it's in the autobiography of a yogi and first his soldiers went and threatened that if he didn't come to Alexander they would cut off his head and he said well go ahead I don't have any particular use for it meaning that I'm, I'm in divine consciousness take my body if you want to and then Alexander came and offered him everything and the man said the yogi said it wasn't Diogenes it was just a yogi wasn't it where did Diogenes come into that? That was a total confusion. Um, the yogi said, uh, maybe it was, it doesn't make any difference, but he said uh, to Alexander, Well, there is something I want from you. The way you're standing, you're blocking the sun. Could you please move over a little bit? <laughs> and that was it. It's like, What could I possibly want from you? The only motivation is to be in tune with God and nothing else in this world makes any difference. It's a very beautiful reality. And sometimes we're there. And the response to suffering is most interesting, really. I have one minute. The response to suffering is most interesting because you only suffer when you have a desire for things to be other than they are. And if you're a Brahman and always conscious of the presence of God, there's no... Um, duality. And so suffering ceases to exist. If you have questions, we can go on. We can... How do we live our lives? How do we live our lives? given those four things. You mean, what do we do or which one of these are we? or mm-hmm. How do we determine that? I think you watch yourself. You be, I mean, we're all, we're all... Everybody who's standing on the path of self-realization is at least mostly a Kshatriya you would never be in this room unless you were largely a Kshatriya because you wouldn't have asked the questions that would have brought you here. So you can assume that. And then it's a question of these these qualities bleeding into your basically Kshatriya consciousness. And so then you behave like Kshatriya and try to find out the truth. And then you try to master yourself. You try to become a warrior and try to conquer these aspects of yourself. And if nothing else works, offer yourself chocolate.
1: Because <laughs> it's better to
0: do that which works. <laughs> how do you go towards Brahman then? Um, by exactly what we're doing, which is try as much as possible to think first of God in every decision and, and start practicing making your decisions by the highest principle that you can imagine. You know, a principle of generosity is a nice principle. A principle of serving God is better. You know, I mean, I'll I'll go back to tithing for a minute. You know, you can be generous and help out things, but to tithe is to give to God because it's the right thing to do. You just, as much as possible, you just move everything toward the highest principle that actually, you can actually comprehend. And just keep working. I mean, I was talking on Sunday about serving the guru. You know, like, what what does it mean to serve the guru? We're not going to be carrying his slippers and fixing his tea. So we try to think about everything we're doing at the highest octave. And for us as devotees, serving the guru is a very high octave. So we want to put as much of our life in line that way. And we want to put as much of what we're doing anyway into that context. So that everything becomes um, Brahman-oriented. And so it's really very much a matter of inner attitude. And that is a big shift from just doing it because it's right, to doing it because I'm because I feel God's presence through me. So it's the practice of japa. All right, very good. So well, now we're going go to go into lesson twenty-two.